Eat less, move more, eat lots of fruits and vegetables. It's so simple. Yet, the American public has a multi-billion dollar diet industry, ever-growing rates of obesity, and serious questions about what to eat. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM Channel 233. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from New York City is my guest, Dr. Marion Nessel. Dr. Nessel is Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at the New York University. Her degrees include a Ph.D. in molecular biology and an MPH in public health nutrition, both from the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Nessel is widely published in professional journals and in the popular press. She has written the award-winning books Food Politics and Safe Food. Her most recent book is What to Eat. Welcome, Dr. Nessel. No, glad to be here. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you about this topic, which is of importance to everyone who thinks about the best ways to feed themselves and their families. Why is it so difficult to know what to eat, Dr. Nessel? Oh, I think it's enormously complicated. When I was writing the book, What to Eat, uh, people were coming up to me after my other books got published and saying, well, your books are very interesting and all this political stuff is really interesting, but you're not telling us what to eat. And we go into supermarkets and we don't have a clue what to do. And I live in Manhattan. We don't really have supermarkets in Manhattan. And so I had to start going to supermarkets in upstate New York to realize what was going on. And I think on the first day that I went into a supermarket as an anthropologist might, uh, I could see immediately what the problem was. Um, and I liked, I love to tell that story because I went to a very beautiful store um, that had seven different kinds of romaine lettuce that people had to choose about. Some were in bags, some were cut up, some had the leaves removed, one was organic, one was locally grown. You know, but in order to figure out what the most reasonable purchase was, um, I had to go to the store three times and bring a calculator and get a scale. Right. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. And I thought, if it's this difficult to buy lettuce, what about all the rest of the stuff that's in here? You could and, spend and hours thought, comparing. You could spend hours reading labels. You could spend, and I did spend hours reading labels. And so I went through a supermarket and tried to answer the kinds of questions that anybody might have, but didn't want to spend a year doing it like I did. Right, right. And so what did you see as you, as you looked at all these choices for us? Well, basically, the supermarkets perform this enormous public service in one-stop shopping, but they are not social service agencies. Their businesses and their job is to get people to eat more food, not less. And the entire store is created in a way to get people to buy more products than they either want or need. And this is done, so every single aspect of the supermarket is researched to see what will encourage sales the most. So it's not an accident that the produce section is almost always at the front of stores. It's what brings people in. It's not an accident that milk is as far away from the door as it could possibly be. That gets you to walk through the store because the overriding consideration is that the more products you look at, the more you buy. And you have thoroughly addressed the uh, issue of competition for food dollars and its impact on the American diet. Can you talk about the effects of overabundance? As I'm always saying, the number of calories in the food supply has gone from 3,200 for every man, woman, and child to 3,900 just in the 25 years since 1980. And what that means is that there's roughly twice as much food available in the food supply as the country needs on average. That's not what people are actually eating. That's what's available, less exports plus imports. And in that kind of situation, food companies have to sell food like mad. 
and their job is to sell more food. They have to report to Wall Street every 90 days how much more profit they're making this quarter than they did last quarter. Well, let's talk about how pricing encourages people to purchase greater quantities of food and usually less nutritious food. Sure. I love to use soft drinks as an example. If you go, at least the last time I counted, a a two-liter bottle of a soft drink was about three cents per ounce. But if you bought the eight-ounce cans, which you can still get in some places, it was almost 11 cents per ounce. So it costs more than three times as much to buy a smaller portion than it does to buy a larger portion. If you're on a budget, which are you going to buy? Which is the better value? And which is the better value? And I asked supermarket executives, how come you charge so much for eight-ounce cans? And they said if people want smaller portions, they should be willing to pay for them. So there you are. That's the philosophy. And what we know is, I mean, we know so much about large servings and large containers and large portions of food now because there are such good researchers doing research on this, on this topic. They have shown without question, first of all, the obvious larger portions have more calories. But besides that, people eat more calories from larger portions, and they underestimate the number of calories they're eating by a larger percentage from large containers than from small containers. Mm -hmm. So we're back to awareness on the part of the consumer. They are maybe thinking they're getting a good deal, but in the long run for their health, it's not a good deal. Well, it's more than awareness. It's, uh, I mean, and this was what was so surprising to me in doing the research for what to eat. It's more than awareness. It's a depth of understanding of not only the food itself, but the context in which the food is being sold that most people don't have and should be expected to have. I mean, they really shouldn't. They should just be able to go in and buy healthy food without being manipulated into buying the unhealthy foods because those are the cheapest or the most obvious or the ones that are right in your face. And and the example that I give of that is I was taken by a reporter for the Los Angeles Times to a a supermarket in a very low-income area in Los Angeles. And I could not believe the number of places in that store that were, where soft drinks were sold. There was a wall of soft drinks at the entrance. There were soft drinks at the end of at least seven or eight aisles. Those are prime real estate where you can't possibly miss seeing them. There was a platform of soft drinks with garden furniture displayed on it. I mean, you could not walk out of that store without buying a soft drink. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Marion Nessel, nutrition, food studies, and public health professor at New York University and widely published author on nutrition. Let's move from the soft drinks for a minute here to fresh food. Fresh food always sounds better. How does the Food and Drug Administration to find fresh? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't have, there's no uh, regulatory definition for fresh. I mean, most people have an idea of fresh. If it's not processed or if it hasn't been processed very much, then it's considered fresh. And most of those foods are either in the produce section or around the peripheral aisle where they can be kept cold. Mm -hmm. If a food is frozen... Uh, that would not be fresh. That would be frozen. Mm-hmm. It, um, and it, depending on how many steps it takes before you purchase it. Yeah, I mean, most foods that we eat are processed to some extent. I mean, even the produce has been cut and washed, and um, there's some processing that goes into it. But I divide foods into those that are relatively unprocessed and those that are relatively processed, and it's usually pretty easy to tell the difference. 
the ones that you have to cook are relatively unprocessed. Mm -hmm. Um, And the ones that come out of boxes in the center aisles are the heavily processed foods that are very shelf-stable, and, you know, stability has a lot to do with it. One of the questions that I had when I started the research was, how long does, you know, I live in Manhattan, how long does it take to get produce from California, which is where most of it is grown, to Manhattan? I was really curious about that. It was very hard to find it out, but eventually I did. And what did you find? Well, it was 10 to 14 days. That's fresh. That's, and that's, those are considered fresh when they've been sitting around on trucks or in boxes or in warehouses for all of that time. Now, you might ask the question, why does it take that long to get food from California to Manhattan? It's trucked, and it goes through warehouses and is distributed. But for those of us who do a lot of cross-country traveling, <clears throat> it is a complete explanation of why food tastes so much better in California. And that, that leads to, the, to a question about why it's important to know where our produce was grown. Well, yes. Because if you're buying blueberries from Chile in winter, you have a pretty good idea that it took a long time for them to get to your store, depending on where your store is. And there will be some loss in nutritional value, and there certainly will be a significant loss in flavor. There's legislation requiring country of origin labeling in the U.S., isn't there? Only for fish. Uh, Congress passed country of origin labeling a few years ago, and that was supposed to apply to all foods. But the food industry rallied around and got the legislation postponed for everything except fish. Why fish wasn't, why the fish industry wasn't able to get in on that as well, I have no idea. But the only food products that must be by law labeled with the country of origin are um, in the fish section of supermarkets. And I would say it's a law that is widely ignored and it certainly isn't being enforced. When uh, answering the question posed by your book title, it's uh, a question and an answer, what to eat, what is your best advice? Well, I actually have, I actually don't think it's very complicated. Um, I think it's you just, if you're worried about weight, you eat less and move more. And then as far as the diet is concerned, you eat a lot of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains and don't eat too much junk food. And it's as simple as that. Everything else is in the details. The thing that keeps coming up, though, over and over, and apparently it's novel, is eat less. Don't eat so many calories. Well, yes, because calories are what obesity is about. It's eating too many calories for the number of calories that are being expended. But food companies would love people to think that it has nothing to do with the amount you eat. It's what you eat that counts for obesity. But it's not. It's calories. And calories are hard for people. I mean, I can understand this. Calories are very abstract. You can't see them, smell them, or taste them. They're impossible to count in food unless you've watched the food being made, weigh every ingredient, and look it all up in food tables. So it's kind of, a, you're, it's kind of an estimation. The only way you can tell if you're eating too many calories is by what's happening on a scale. You, know, you weigh yourself. Yeah, I wonder if that's what makes certain diets popular, that uh, there'll be a list of certain foods that are okay and certain foods that aren't or certain um, fats or... The only way that diets work is by reducing caloric intake below expenditure. If they don't do that, they're not going to work. But the diets themselves, the fad diets in particular, want people to think that it's what you eat that matters when actually it's how much. That's why the issue of portion size is so important. Uh, because po- larger portions have more calories and they encourage people to eat more. Um, and it's impossible to tell how many calories are in a portion. If people knew how many calories were in restaurant portions, they would be amazed, I think. 
you know, a, a typical lunch or dinner would be more calories than you need for an entire day. Right. And you certainly see that when you eat out. The portion sizes are enormous. Did you also see that when you were walking through the grocery with the scientific guy? In the grocery store, it's th- there are larger packages. If you go to a place like Costco, the packages are enormous. And there's plenty of evidence that if you are eating a food from a very large container, you will eat more of it than you will if, there's a, if you're eating it from a small container. I mean, that's another sort of trick that people can do to try to cut down the number of calories they're eating, is to use smaller utensils and smaller plates. Even that would help. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Marion Nessel, nutrition, food studies, and public health professor at New York University and widely published author on nutrition. Thank you for this interesting discussion, Dr. Nessel. My pleasure. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.